you again. Lord God, we thank you for your church and for your word. Lord, help us to understand it. Help me to be able to speak it as it ought to be spoken. Transform us, spirit, by what you say to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. See if you can finish this phrase for me. Don't worry, be happy. This is a phrase, catchphrase that's popular all over the world, made famous by Bobby McFerrin's song of the same name, published in 1988. There's a simple thought in this phrase, and that is, worry makes people unhappy, worry makes you unhappy, so if you just choose not to worry, you'll be happy. Well, it's a pleasant sentiment, nice idea, it's not very practical, it's actually quite naive. I mean, especially these days, right? You look around at our world, you're like, uh, there's a lot of danger out there. There's a lot of uncertainty. How can I not worry? In fact, just speaking from a biblical perspective, the non-Christian, that is the person who does not truly know the Lord, he has plenty to worry about. Because you face the crises of this world and even the crises in your own life all alone. There's no one really to help you. It's survival of the fittest in a savage landscape. Or if you do have a god, some god that you worship, which the Bible would say is a false god, you can't rest there either because that god demands and demands and demands and demands of you. You have to fulfill some sort of requirements to that god and you never know when it's enough. You've got to worry about that god. And really, you ought to worry about the true God because he actually is very jealous for his own glory and for the honor that is due him. And you're not giving it to him. And he's being patient with you, but you don't know when his patience will run out. You have plenty to worry about. You don't have any right to be happy. But the biblical Christian, the true Christian, really, he's the only one. She's the only one in this world who has a right to not worry and be happy. Why is that? Because the biblical Christian is saved, saved under the Father's care. He doesn't face the crises of life alone. He has a heavenly Father. And yet, how many Christians live still so full of worry? They're not that different from the rest of the people in the world. They do worry, and they're not very happy. Think for yourselves. Do you find yourself worrying in your life? When you consider our present situation, are you full of worry? Do you only have peace when life is going well, when you're through the crises? Or can you confidently say that you are content and confident in the Lord no matter what situation you face? Because you know he'll take care of you. I think we all struggle with worry to one extent or another. So it would be very profitable for us to go back to our Lord's authoritative teaching on worry in Matthew 6. So please take your Bibles and open up to the the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. We need to do this so we can put the sin of worry, and yes, worry is a sin. We need to put the sin of worry to death. And instead, walk by faith and joy in the Lord, which will be a witness to our surrounding and worried world. So we're in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. We read the immediate context before. This is Jesus' great sermon on the mount, where we were last time. 
And remember in that sermon, Jesus is fundamentally contrasting true righteousness and false righteousness. Those who are really getting into the kingdom of God and those who only think they are. Listen to what Jesus says starting in verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or if your body as to what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will they not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things be added to you. So, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is just a wonderful passage. What we see from our Lord on the most basic level are commands and reasons to obey those commands. There are two main commands in this passage. The first is quite obvious and emphatic. That is command Do not worry. See this three times. Verse 25, do not be worried. Verse 31, do not worry. Verse 34, so do not worry. Jesus is trying to get a certain point across. This is something you are not to do. And notice he emphasizes his authority to say this to us in verse 25. He says, I say to you, like we saw last time, the Son of God, the authoritative revelator of God and his truth, he says, I'm telling you how you ought to live. This is a binding command from the Master, from the Lord of the universe, and from your Lord, if you are my disciple. Don't worry. But what does it mean to worry? And this is an important clarification, because I think we get a little off course with this. Worry, and listen to this, worry is not the same as mere concern, or even fear. To have concern or to have fear in your life at some level is a good thing. I mean, think about it. Think about the fear of heights. Is that a good thing? To a certain level it is. Why? Because if you had no fear of heights, you would get up onto a high place and act somewhat recklessly, and you might hurt yourself. It's good to have a certain amount of fear. It's good to fear fearsome animals. It's good to fear poison and things like that. That's actually God's grace to you. Same with concerns. Is it right to be concerned about how you're going to feed your family? Well, yes. If you weren't concerned about that, well, then you'd probably run out of food. To a certain level, that is a grace from God. You you ought to have a certain level of concern. Those are not the same as worry. What is worry? Worry is inordinate concern. It's over-the-top fear. It is continual concern, concern without bounds, terrorized concern. 
overwhelming concern, paralyzed fear. And God says, this is not what you are to have. You are not to have that concern without bounds. You should not worry. You should not be anxious in that way. Have you ever been worried that way? I think if you're a human being, you probably have. It's just some problem you face, and it seems serious, and you're not sure how you're going to get through it. And to begin to think about the different outcomes and, and how it might damage you or ruin your life or bring certain troubles that are just going to be so irksome to you going forward. And to begin to feel a certain anguish in your heart, a certain despair. That's worry. And Jesus says, stop doing that. Stop being so concerned about your life. Stop letting these fears and concerns go beyond their proper bounds. Don't worry. This is what our Lord says. And what is he referring to that we worry about? Well, worry is always connected to life's needs. You think you need something, you fear you might not get it, you worry about it. Jesus is talking about the same thing in our passage. Notice back in verse 25, He says, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about your body. What does he mean by those things? He's talking about your temporal existence. And that's clarified with the three terms that follow. What you will eat, what you will drink, and what you will wear for clothing. These are the basic necessities of life. We often say you need food, clothes, and shelter to live. But they, in ancient times, especially in the Bible, they said food, drink, and clothing. Probably because in that environment. It wasn't so bad to sleep outside, so you could get by without shelter. Jesus says, do not be overly concerned about life's needs, but instead, and now here's the second command, and it appears in verse 33, a little bit down in the passage, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Who's the his? In context, it's God. It's our heavenly father. And what does he mean by kingdom? We could take a long time to explain this, but I'll just summarize briefly. A kingdom is a concept that is all throughout the Old Testament and going right into the New Testament. God has a kingdom, a realm of righteousness and blessing and prosperity and life that is coming to the earth. One day it will be established by the Lord himself on the earth, and it will extend into the new heavens and the new earth. Not everyone is getting into that kingdom. But Jesus urges all who hear him to seek entry into it. And that's really part of this second command where he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We could just summarize it as seek God. You are to seek entry into God's kingdom, his coming kingdom. You are to seek the advancement of that kingdom by honoring the Lord, by making disciples, drawing in new kingdom citizens into his kingdom. And you are also to practice God's righteousness. The ways of God are right. He has prescribed them to us. We are to imitate God. We are to do what he desires and do what he commands. That's what it means when he says seek his righteousness. So we could encapsulate all of that with the simple command, seek God. So we have these two. Two straightforward commands in our passage. Do not worry, but instead Seek God. Or to take that catchphrase I mentioned earlier, we could revise it just slightly. It's not don't worry, be happy. What's the way we to live as Christians? Don't worry, be holy. 
There's happiness involved in that too, but you don't have to worry. You could just be holy. I just say, but wait, there's still a lot of dangers and uncertainties in life. How can I do this? Jesus is the Lord. If he just said, do it, that would be enough. God doesn't have to give us an explanation, but our gracious and compassionate God does. He gives us reasons and encouragements to obey this command. And there are a number in our passage, but I think it will be helpful if we just group them into three main reasons. And we can do this if we just look at the repetitions of the command not to worry in the passage and then look at the reasoning around it and summarize it into three main reasons. And that's what I'm going to give to you now. That's going to be the outline of my sermon. Three reasons why we should not worry, but instead seek God. Reason number one, worry is idolatrous. Reason number two, worry is unnecessary. And reason number three, worry is overburdening. Let's investigate these reasons as we go verse by verse. We'll start with the first one, worry is idolatrous. This is what we see in verses 25 to 30. Notice again in verse 25 how it begins, for this reason. Now that's a key phrase. That's a transition phrase. It means that what Jesus is about to say is based on what he just said. Now in the scripture reading we had earlier in the service, you heard what came before. Jesus has just been speaking about treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. And he concluded that section by saying, you cannot serve God and wealth at the same time. The Lord demands your entire devotion. You cannot try and split it with something else. Especially not mere things, wealth of this world. What's the connection between that teaching and our passage? Jesus says, for this reason, you see it? Jesus is saying, worry is basically worship of wealth. Or another way to say it, worry is worship of things of the world. It's a manifestation of that kind of worship. Or in other words, idolatry. You cannot serve God and worry at the same time. And that's even obvious from the commands in our passage, right? You have these contrasting commands. Don't worry, seek God. Why do they contrast? Because you can't do them both. Have you ever noticed this in your own experiences of worry? The thing you worry about is something that you basically love and think it is, is essential to your life. You have this treasure, and then something threatens it. Threatens your access to it. Threatens your enjoyment of it. And that's where you begin to feel all those negative feelings. Oh no, my treasure! You begin to be consumed with thought about how you can keep access to it or what it will be like to lose it. You begin to be filled with anger or depression or unease. It's worry. Worry is an expression of worship. And based on what Jesus said before, he says this is a senseless expression of worship because things don't deserve your devotion. They cannot last. They cannot satisfy you. They cannot save you. And they offend God. When you worship those things, you don't give the proper worship to the true God. It is a blasphemy. And God cannot abide it. Worry is idolatrous. And this is emphasized with what Jesus says next. This is more on the positive side. Verse 25 
uh, is not life, so right after he, he, he says don't be worried, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It's a rhetorical question. Answer is, well, yes, of course. Life is certainly more than these mere things, these basic, this basic level of sustaining yourself. What is life about? It's about the Lord. It's about walking before Him, worshiping Him, serving Him, enjoying Him. But you can never get to that level if you're stuck worrying about mere things. The majority of our thought and energy ought to be devoted to life's greatest purpose, which is the Lord. Of course, there are basic things you have to take care of. But that should not be your dominant, that shouldn't be the dominant uh, thinking of your heart. It should be on God. So ask yourselves, where is the majority of your thoughts? Is it on your troubles? Is it on your needs? Or is it on the Lord? We fall into this kind of idolatrous thinking because we often overestimate the importance of creation versus the creator. And Jesus actually draws that to our attention in a number of ways going forward in the passage. In verses 26 to 30, we see this contrast of how we overestimate creation rather than the creator. And one of the ways we do this is by thinking about how we must prepare for the future. If you don't prepare for the future, you're toast. Don't be a fool. If you don't prepare, there's no hope for you. But look at what Jesus says in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now this is very interesting. Jesus says, look at the birds. Learn something from the birds. Sitting there on that mountain in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, there are probably birds flying overhead. Tons of birds in Palestine, as there are all over the world. He says, look at them. They don't prepare for the future. You don't see them farming. They're not sowing, reaping, and gathering their crops, putting them in barns. They don't prepare. They do work. They go out looking for food each day. They build their nests. But they don't prepare for the future. And what's the outcome of this way of living for the birds? Well, they do pretty well. They survive and they even thrive. There are birds all over the planet. They're able to live. How can they do this when they don't do the smart thing and prepare for the future? God provides for them. Psalm 145 says, God provides for all who look to him, even the birds. Now, is Jesus saying we don't need to prepare for the future then? No, scriptures exhorts us to be wise. Go to Proverbs, it says, look, be prepared for the future. But what if you can't? If you don't have the resources? Or what if you did prepare and all those preparations just melted away? Some market downturn or some theft or some emergency in your life and pff, there goes all your preparations. Should you start worrying? No. Why not? Because if God can take care of birds who don't prepare, who can't prepare for the future, can't he also take care of you if you're not able to prepare or if you suddenly lose your preparation? And think of what Jesus ends this little lesson with at the end of verse 26. Are you not worth much more than they? Aren't you worth more than birds? Another rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, you are. You're made in the image of God. 
if you're a human being. And if you know Jesus Christ and are in him, God is your heavenly father who is delighted to meet your needs, who is devoted to you, who will not allow his name to be sullied by failing to provide for one of his children. You are worth much more than a bird to God. And if he takes care of the birds, can't he take care of you without you worrying? Another way we overestimate creation versus the creator is that we forget who really has the power in our lives. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? This is another rhetorical question from Jesus. It would probably be less rhetorical today because we don't have the same theological understanding in our society. But to the Jews, this was obvious. Can anyone add a single hour to his life by worry? No. Why? Because God is sovereign. God has determined everyone's lifespan. You can't change that. Listen to Psalm 139.16. Psalm 139.16. Psalmist says, Your eyes, speaking to God, have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Do you hear that? No matter how much effort you put, it, put into prolonging your life, if God hasn't ordained it, it won't happen. Not even by one hour. We could even say not even by one minute. Now Jesus says, well, it's implied here, but it's made explicit in the parallel teaching in Luke 12, 25. Kind of given the same thing there. Jesus is implying, if you can't do this little thing, if you can't even lengthen your life by one second, what makes you think you can do anything beneficial by worry? You don't have that kind of power. Well, someone will say, well, are you saying that it doesn't matter what I do, that my efforts are totally pointless? Well, no. There's a mysterious way where our agency, our responsibility, fits in with God's sovereignty. You are responsible to make good choices. You are responsible to be wise. And if you aren't, and you experience the consequences of it, you can't be like, ah, oh, but God made me do it. No, you chose to do it. You weren't forced to. You weren't coerced. You reap what you sow. Nevertheless, in your agency, in your meaningful action, listen to what Psalm 127 says. Psalm 127, verses 1 to 2. Unless the Lord, and that is Yahweh there, covenant name of God, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. This is a liberating truth, even as it is a sobering one. Who supports you in your life? Who is really the one who keeps you alive? God. It's not you. Yes, you are the means. God often works through your hard work and your wisdom. You are called to exercise those, but it's not you. Ultimately, it's God. Well, why is that liberating? Because what if you suddenly can't work? What if you're injured? What if you lose your job? What if some crisis comes upon you and you're no longer able to support yourself? Should you worry? No. Why not? 
because you weren't the one supporting yourself in the first place. It was God. And if you can't be the means anymore, he will provide another means. If this is true, if the power is not really in you and it's not really in creation, it's in God, then why are we devoted to the things so much? Why are we thinking about things and rather think, than thinking about him? Or why are we so concerned for our cares? Why are we worried? There's a third way, this is the last one in this little section, where we show that we overestimate the importance of creation versus the creator, and that's when it comes to adornment. This is a little funny because our worries about adornment, clothing and such, are different than the worries in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they worried about clothing because they feared they wouldn't have any. Because at that time, making clothes was laborious, buying clothes was extremely expensive, so if you're the average Israelite, you had like two pairs of clothes, maybe three. And if you lost one, if it was ripped or it was sullied in some way, oh, that was a big loss. It was a source of worry. But that's not the way we worry about clothes. We often worry about clothes because we don't think they fit properly or we're worried that it's not fashionable or it's not with the trends or something like that. Now, same issue, we worry about our appearance and to some level a concern is appropriate. But what about an inordinate concern of appearance? Listen to what Jesus says in verses 28 to 30. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? We learned a lesson from the birds. Now Jesus wants to learn a lesson from flowers, from wildflowers. It says lilies in our translation, but the, the term is broad. It could refer to any number of wildflowers. But have you ever looked at a field of wildflowers? Maybe you saw it in a picture. Maybe you saw it in real life. How does it look? It's so beautiful. Or we lived in California, Southern California. Even though it's deserty, you have these beautiful wildflowers that grow even on the side of the road. Jesus says, notice something about these flowers. They don't toil and they don't spin. Meaning, they don't work hard. Flowers don't have a difficult day job that they do. They can make money and then buy garments for themselves. They don't even spin. Meaning, they don't spin thread. They don't make clothes for themselves. They don't spend the time at the spinning wheel doing all that labor to make clothing. And why don't flowers do that? Because they can't. They're flowers. All they can do is grow. And they accept whatever God gives them. But then notice something else. Jesus says, you see how beautiful a wildflower is? I tell you, not even Solomon looked better. What? Solomon? He was the greatest, the richest, the wisest, the most prosperous king in Israel's history. Jesus says, with all his riches and his artifice, Solomon can't match the beauty of a simple flower. And yet, notice something else Jesus says, flowers are so transient. They are here today, gone tomorrow. When they wither, they dry up. People gather them and use them as fuel for their ovens. And Jesus says, notice God takes interest in adorning even these short-lived flowers. He makes them beautiful, more beautiful than Solomon. Why would God do that? Isn't that wasteful? This is who our God is. God has such a mind, such wisdom, such, 
such a beauty in his thinking that he loves to adorn his creation. Wherever you look in this world and in the cosmos, you see what the Psalm 19 say, the glory of God. Creation declares the glory of God. There is beauty of the Lord and all the things that he has made. He can't help but adorn it. It's who he is. But if God delights to adorn near worthless flowers that are here today, gone tomorrow, won't he delight to adorn you? Not just adequately, but even beautifully? You say, really? God's going to make me beautiful? What a sweet deal! But is God promising you expensive clothes and a nice figure? No, not promising that. God makes everything beautiful in its own way. It doesn't require necessarily expensive things. God may give that, but we are not to expect that or agonize over that. Because where is beauty really found? According to the scriptures, it's not the outward appearance. It is the beauty of the heart. And when someone loves the Lord and is truly righteous, have you ever noticed that when you meet that person, there's like, there's like a glow about them. There's an attractiveness to them that comes from within, and it's like it colors the outside. That's why 1 Peter 3 says, speaking to women, but it applies to all of us, don't be consumed about your outer adornment, but seek the adornment that is in the heart. As you display a righteous contentment and a trust in the Lord, you will be quite beautiful. Does that mean we should just let the outer appearance go? God says it's all about the inner beauty, so I'm not going to pay attention to any of this. Please don't do that. Your, uh, your family will appreciate your efforts to make yourself look nice, and you don't want to put a stumbling block before the gospel or, or ministry by a disheveled and an uncared-for appearance. What's the point from Jesus' talking about flowers? It's, again, liberation. You can stop being so consumed in your thoughts and in your time and in your efforts and even in your money with your outer appearance. Yes, make certain practical preparations there, but let the Lord take care of it. He delights to adorn his creation. He'll do it for you because you are his child. Ask yourselves, how much do you stress out about your appearance? Are you worried about it? Does it take a lot of your thought? Jesus says, I don't want you distracted in that way. You're my disciple. I want you to be seeking me. In multiple ways, then, worry is wrong worship. It distracts us from life's true calling, which is to seek God and to enjoy God. It values the creation improperly. It values it more than the creator. And it distracts us. So Jesus says, stop. Stop being so concerned. Don't worry. Instead, seek God. That's the first reason. Worry is idolatrous. But there's a second reason. And this we see in verses 31 to 33. Worry is also unnecessary. Worry is quite unnecessary. Notice in verse 31, where we see a repetition of the command not to worry. In verse 32, Jesus then says this. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. What did Jesus mean by Gentiles? You heard it earlier in the scripture reading. This isn't referring technically to non-Jews. Sometimes the word is used that way. This is referring to people who don't know God. 
pagans. What do you notice about them? Jesus says they eagerly seek all these things. What things? Things I've just been talking about, the things of the world, life's needs. They not only multiply needs for themselves, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, but even the things that they actually need, they pursue relentlessly, furiously, unendingly. Oh, I got to get more. I got to get more. I got to be prepared for the future. I got to store it up. Then I'll be safe. Jesus says that's what the Gentiles do. And what does he imply by that? You're not a Gentile. You're not somebody who doesn't know God. You shouldn't be acting like them. Christians, true Christians, biblical Christians, ought to contrast greatly with the people of the world. Christians should not be chasing in a terrorized way all their needs. Neither should Christians be hoarding, supposing that if they just stored up enough stuff, they'd be safe. They know that that's not really going to help. God can take that away in an instant. What do Christians do? They give away. They give away in order to meet needs. They're generous. They also give away, get rid of whatever distracts. The will say, no, 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 you need that. How are you going to be prepared for the future? Sorry, it's distracting me from following the Lord. I know he'll provide. I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. Christians remain confident that God is able to supply anything that they don't have currently, if they need it. Why are Christians so confident? Verse 32. Look at verse 32 again. The end of it says, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. This is an amazing comfort. Not only, again, that reference to God as our Heavenly Father, a God, a Father who cares, who knows, who loves, but He's intimately acquainted with all the things that we need. Not just food, clothing, shelter, but other things like sleep or rest or encouragement. God knows exactly what you need in your life. And as a good Father, He's committed to providing it for you. Sometimes we suspect this isn't true. We face some problem, face some situation. You say, God, you know I needed that thing. God, you know I can't handle this right now. But what does he say in response via his scriptures? He says, actually, my dear son, my dear daughter, I know your needs. I know them better than you do. This isn't more than you can handle. You didn't really need that thing that you lost. What you need is me and everything Anything that I've deemed to give you, I know you need it. Trust me. Continue to be obedient. Don't worry. Now, this may provoke a certain question in some of your minds. Maybe you've been thinking of this the whole time. But aren't there Christians out there who actually are lacking their needs? There are some Christians who don't have food or don't have much. There are some Christians who are basically walking in rags how have they been provided adequate clothing? Is this true? It is. It's true historically. It's true in our present world. And it's true even in the record of the scriptures. There are times when God's children, not because they did anything wrong, but they go through a period where they lack even life's basic needs. Here's a good example of that. Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11, he says, I have experienced deprivation in many areas. I've been poorly clothed. I haven't had enough food. 
Other places he says, I don't get much sleep. Oh, didn't God fail then? Paul's not complaining. He's instead giving praise to God. He said, God determined that actually in this moment of deprivation, I would glorify him best. And that's what I want most of all, Paul says. To live as Christ. I'm here to serve the Lord and glorify him. And if I can serve the Lord and glorify him by suffering need, then I want that. It'll be hard. I'll need the Lord to sustain me. But I know that's what I ultimately need. I need that more than I need my own comfort. Paul understood that. But it's also true for us. It may be that God is going to bring you into a period of your life where you're suffering without basic needs. It may be very hard. You may suffer persecution. And we know the scriptures also says you may even suffer death. You may suffer death. God may provide that for you. You say, but that seems like the ultimate failure to meet needs. Not true. What did Paul say when he faced his own death? In 2 Timothy 4.18, he's about to be executed by the Roman emperor. Doesn't deserve to be executed, but he's about to be. It's because he's been serving the Lord. And he says, the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And God will deliver me from every evil attack. Paul, how is that possible? You're about to die. That is the Lord's deliverance. That is the Lord's provision for me. Bring me safely through, even though. That could be true for us. You never know how things will go in this country or what God might arrange in our lives. It may be necessary in God's sovereign plan that we die for the Lord. We're all going to die eventually, unless the Lord comes back in between. But that is God's good provision for us. And just as Paul says, he will bring us safely through even into his heavenly kingdom. You say, but I don't think I, could, I don't think I could handle that. I can't handle being persecuted. I can't handle being executed for Christ. I think I'll buckle. Well, again, it is wise to make practical preparations. If you're not serving the Lord now, if you're not walking with the Lord now, then it's not super likely that you'll stand up under persecution. Nevertheless, it's also true that God will give you grace in that hour. You can't handle martyrdom right now because you don't need to. God will give you the grace. He'll enable you to stand so that you don't have to worry. Isn't that what he, Jesus told his disciples? They'll bring you into the courts. They'll threaten you with death. Don't worry what you're going to say in that hour. Not saying you can't prepare at all. He just say, don't be inordinately concerned because I will be with you and I'll give you what to say. God's omniscience, God's care is our Father. Make worry unnecessary. But not just that, he gives us an amazing promise. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, we saw this a little bit already, because this is where the second command appears. Seek God. But notice it's part of a conditional statement. If you will seek God, if you will seek first, prioritize his kingdom and his righteousness, what's guaranteed? All these things will be added to you. What things? Everything I've just been talking about, Jesus says, all your life's needs, I'll give them to you. Wait a second. Let me get that deal straight. You're saying that if I seek you first, Lord and God, 
If I seek you and your kingdom, I'll get perfect provision for life thrown in. But if I seek the things of the world, I'll lose those, and I'll lose the kingdom, and I'll lose my own soul forever. Isn't that an obvious choice? Isn't that a no-brainer? This kind of parallels something in the Old Testament. Remember when God came to Solomon and he said to Solomon, ask whatever it is you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, Lord, what I really need most is wisdom and how to govern your people. Please give me wisdom. And God says, because you asked for this, you didn't ask for long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I'll give you the lesser things too. You chose the right thing. I'll give you lesser things. It's the same thing with us. If you will seek the Lord in his kingdom, God says, I'll provide perfectly for you in your life. Now again, that's not the prosperity gospel. It's not a private jet, super exotic car, a beautiful exotic spouse, not necessarily. But it is exactly what you need according to God's perfect wisdom and his abundant love. God's omniscience then, his care and his promise, they make worry Totally unnecessary, don't they? There's no reason to worry if we have this promise from God and if we have him as our father. So we see a second reason why we should not worry but instead seek God. Number one, worry is idolatrous. Number two, worry is unnecessary. And then finally, number three, worry is overburdening. This we see in verse 34. Jesus says, look at the first part of it, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. This is kind of a funny expression. There's a little bit of a humorous personification going on here. Like tomorrow we're a person that you could interact with or that could care for itself. Imagine, kind of like when we worry, it's like we're going up to tomorrow and being like, hey, I know you got a lot of troubles coming, so just let me know now because I, I don't want that uncertainty anymore. But tomorrow, it's like tomorrow says back to us, no, 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 no. I got these for now. I'll let you know about the troubles when you're ready. I got these for now. Why does tomorrow need to respond that way? Because of the second part of verse 34. Jesus says, each day has enough trouble of its own. This is a sobering admission of human capacity, rather of human incapacity. You see, when God made man, even before the fall, he designed man to be dependent on God. God didn't just create Adam and even said, all right, I'm going to give you all this stuff and you won't need to bother me again for another 5,000 years. That was not the case. He says, you're going to continue to need to seek me. You're going to need to continue to look to me. Of course, the fall was basically an effort of independence from God. But it's still true today. We are designed to depend on God, even daily. When we try to go outside of that design and say, God, I'm going to take care of it all myself. I'm going to take care of all the problems all by myself. All at once, what do we find? It's too much. It's overwhelming. We can't handle that kind of burden. God says, it's because I didn't design you to. We heard earlier in the passage that Jesus taught his disciples to pray for daily bread. Not bread for the rest of my life. Not bread for the next year. Just bread for tomorrow. God, just, just give me daily bread. Does that mean we're not to prepare for the future at all? No, we've already talked about that. God calls you to be a wise steward. But you're not to be inordinately concerned. 
And it doesn't do you no good because you are limited. You have limited knowledge. You can't know everything that you need to know about the future. You have limited resources. You have limited ability to act. So God says, just take care of what's in front of you. Ultimately, God's the one in control of tomorrow. He says, I got these for now. I'll give you them little by little as you're able to handle them. But just take what's in front of you right now. As Christians, we really do have to take it one day at a time. Even one hour at a time. Maybe you've got several big tasks coming up. It's like, oh no, that's so much. God says, just take it one at a time. I'll provide for those other things when you get there. But leave them aside for now. Just focus on what's in front of you. And you know what's so beautiful about that command? Not only does it prevent us from being overwhelmed, but it prevents us from missing out on what God is doing right now. God is working. God is sanctifying. And God is blessing. There is joy that you can have right now, which you totally sacrifice if you just start taking on tomorrow's problems. God says, I don't want you to miss out. Take it one day at a time. One challenge at a time. Let's review Jesus' argument. We're commanded by the master of the universe, our sovereign Lord, our great Savior. Don't worry. Stop worrying. Instead, seek God. And Jesus gives us three reasons. Worry is idolatrous. It overestimates creation, and it underestimates the creator. Worry is unnecessary. We have God's care. We have God's omniscience. We have his promise. And worry is overburdening. It goes beyond the capacity of man. It goes against God's design for man to depend on God. This is the Lord's word to you this morning. So how you respond to it? Will you heed and obey? Or will you insist, nah, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but I'm just not persuaded. I don't think I can trust you. I don't think I can trust you, God. I mean, you're great and all, but... I think I still have to worry. Don't you see that that really dishonors the Lord? Not to mention it needlessly afflicts ourselves. The way of God is always so good. It is the way of life and blessing. So won't we heed what our Lord says? It's for our good. Stop worrying, he says. If God just came down and says, stop worrying and otherwise I'm going to judge you, that would be right. But that's not the way he comes at it with us. It's very gentle. It's almost like an entreaty. I want you to enjoy me, serve me, not be distracted, so stop worrying. Are you willing to do this? It is an act of faith. It'll be one you'll have to keep coming back to as you face new challenges in your life. But it's what your Lord commands. It's the way to blessing. Now to help us with this, I thought of some quick practical applications of how we can obey these commands not to worry and to seek God. I'm going to give you these kind of quickly. Seven practical applications of our passage. Number one, confess and repent of worry. Worry is a sin, but don't hide it from God. Be honest with him about it and turn away from it. Number two, search for and destroy idols in your heart. As I said, worry is a function of idolatry. If there's something you treasure more than God or you think is more needful than God and what God chooses to provide, you have to get rid of it. You have to let go of it. I say get rid of it. I don't mean you have to actually take it out of your life, but you have to be willing to let go of it and maybe sometimes get rid of it. 
Because as long as that idol's still there, it doesn't matter how much you go to the scriptures, you're still going to worry. How can you identify that idol? Maybe you already know it. But sometimes a good brother or sister around you who's mature can help you. And as you go to the scriptures, the scriptures will help expose what it is that you love more than the Lord. You've got to get rid of that idol if you're going to get rid of worry. Number three, pray to your father. This is a huge part of how we deal with worry. Khalif, our brother, preached on this not too long ago at the beginning of the COVID crisis, quarantine. But Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7 say, if you would just pray to God and believe what you pray, believe that God will answer, then you can have peace and you won't be worried anymore. You've got to do that. Number four, replace worried thoughts and other avenues of temptation. You'll be amazed at how easily you fall into worry when you just keep thinking about your problems. So what's the solution? Stop thinking about your problems. Make practical preparations. But once you've done that, and once you've prayed to God about it, just say, okay, God, I'm going to stop thinking about that now. I'm going to think about something else, like what you put before me today, the challenges you put before me today, the graces you've given me today. Lord, I want to think about that. And Lord, I want to think about you. If you don't replace the thoughts, worry will come back. And also, get rid of things in your life that are causing you to worry that are unnecessary. I remember hearing a story about John MacArthur. Many of you know him, pastor in California. Somebody one time gave him some stocks as a gift, some stocks in the stock market. And that's a kind thing. You know, Maybe they were thinking of John's retirement or something like that. But John decided to get rid of them. Not because he has anything against stocks, but because they were a distraction in his life. You say he would be in the middle of a sermon, and he'd suddenly start be thinking, how's my stock doing? He says, I'm confident that the Lord can provide for me without this stock, and it's just causing me to worry and be distracted, so I'm going to get rid of it. That's a good example of what we ought to do in light of this passage. If there's something in your life, something that's not necessary, that's causing you to worry, get rid of it. You don't want to be distracted in following the Lord, because then you miss out. Number six, or number five, clarify your responsibilities versus God's responsibilities. Sometimes we get so overwhelmed because we know we've got responsibilities in God's, but we're not sure. Just take some time, even on a piece of paper, be like, okay, what has the scripture called me to do before God? And what does scripture promise that God will do? And once you've written that out, be like, okay, then I'll focus on what I'm supposed to do, and I'll leave these things with God. Sometimes when we just don't organize our thoughts or organize our responsibilities, we get overwhelmed. So taking time to just do that practically can be helpful. Number six, I kind of alluded to this one already, get support from the body of Christ. Worry can be overwhelming. Worry can be blinding. But that's why God gave you the church. It is one of the great errors and great injuries of the church to take the mindset, it's just me, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. That'll get me through everything. Well, that'll get you through if you have nothing else. But God has provided a body around you, and he says you need them, and they need you. So you deal with worry, get help from mature brothers and sisters in the church. Say, hey, I keep falling into worry about this thing. Can you help me with it? That's what God designed for you to do. And if you're praying, God, help me with worry, do you realize how God's going to answer that prayer? Often in a very practical way. I've given you people around you who can help you. Why aren't you seeking them out? Get help from the body. And then finally, number seven, and these are not exhaustive, they're just the ones I thought of. Number seven, get to work. Get to work by faith. Sometimes the situation is just still going to seem so daunting, but you got to go into it by faith in the Lord. Like Israel in the Old Testament. 
They had to go into battle. Battle's scary. Battle could cost you your life. But God says, trust me. I'm the one who brings victory or defeat. I'm the one who can preserve your life. But you got to go. you got to go into the battle. So it is with us. We say, oh, I'm tempted to worry. But you just got to go do it. Whatever that thing is that God has called you to do, just start doing it. And practically, haven't you found that, especially when it comes to procrastination, once you actually start doing the task you've been fearing, you find that you stop worrying. Because you realize, oh, it's not so bad. The Lord is helping me do this. So those are just some practical ideas. Confess and repent of worry. Search for and destroy idols of the heart. Pray to your Father. Replace worried thoughts and other avenues of temptation. Clarify your responsibilities versus God's. Get support from the body of Christ. And get to work by faith. Let me clarify before we close that these comforts that we've discussed in this passage as to why you should not worry, they only really apply to true believers in the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ, or if you only think you do because you think you're saved by your church attendance or by your baptism or by your good works or by some ritual you went through, you're not really saved. Because only those who are in Christ by repentance and faith, which is what he called people to do, those who have turned from their sin, their old life, their old way, and instead say, I embrace Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I trust in his perfect life, his sacrificial death on my behalf to pay for my sins, and his glorious resurrection and ascension, which shows that God accepted his sacrifice. I trust in that to make me acceptable to God and nothing on my own. And I trust also that the Lord will provide for me as I follow him, not only in my practical needs, but also to enable me to be obedient. If you haven't done that, then there's no comfort for you. In fact, you have plenty to be worried about because you're still alone. And worse than that, you're under the anger of God because he says, you are continuing to rebel against me. You won't trust me. You impugn my character. I'm against you. And I will have to judge you. God is patient with you now, but you don't know how long that patience will last. So what is this passage exhorting you to do? Turn from that. You could be free from worry. You could have a father who provides for you. Loves you. Delights in you. Delights to take care of you. If you will repent and believe. If you will give up yourself in your old way and embrace Christ, the Lord is calling you to do that this morning from this passage. It's not an accident that you're here or that you're listening. Listen to the word of the Lord. And then finally, again, for those of you who do know Christ, let's no longer worry like the rest of the world does. The world has much to worry about, but we don't. Not when we have such a father. Let us show the world that one need not worry if one will seek God truly. That's the way to happiness. That's the way to be a witness. And if it helps at all, just remember that little phrase that I mentioned earlier. How do we live as Christians? Don't worry. Be holy. The Lord will take care of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us for our worries, God. We have impugned your character. We have been overly concerned with things instead of just trusting you. God, we know we are called to make practical preparation. 
with the various problems and dangers we see in life, but we can't trust in those things. Ultimately, we must trust you. Lord, I pray for those listening today where worry and the idols that feed worry exist in their lives that they would repent of them. Lord, they would repent of their devotion to things. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, don't know your comfort, don't know your provision, Lord, that they would repent today and turn and find your life and your love. We thank you for this wonderful word. Thank you for being so kind to provide it to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.